about me is I'm able to reach a demographic that some people aren't able to tap into. And I really don't take that for granted. There's nothing lovelier, Pandora, than when, you know, a kid that's sort of walking home from school comes up to you and says, oh, you know, I watched your film on child soldiers in the DRC. That's really cool. You're listening to Doing It Right, a shiny new podcast series that delves into the way we live our lives. I'm Pandora Sykes, a journalist and broadcaster, and each week I'll be interviewing a guest about the trivialities, myths and anxieties that make up a modern existence. Basically, it's an excuse for me to pick the brains of some of the people I most admire. Are we living in the age of outrage? Why do human beings find change so hard? And what is torso culture? This is a podcast that combines the little things and the big things, because a good life is made up of both. Stacey Dooley is a documentary filmmaker, broadcaster and author. Over the course of her 12-year career for the BBC, she has presented more than 80 documentaries on hard-hitting topics including child sex abuse in the Philippines, domestic violence in Russia and the trafficking of Class A drugs into continental Europe. She is also the author of a Sunday Times best-selling book, On the Front Line, with the women who fight back. In 2018, she received an OBE, and that same year, she won the celebrity dance competition, Strictly Come Dancing. I talked to Stacey towards the end of June, the same week that she has three shows on the BBC. Glow Up, Britain's Next Makeup Star, EastEnders, Secrets from the Square, and Stacey Dooley Investigates, Spy Cam Sex Criminals in South Korea. Not bad, considering the country is in lockdown. She's currently making a new documentary about the brilliant NHS. Now, as you know by now, the entire series of Doing It Right has been recorded remotely during the pandemic, which means that I haven't got to meet any of my guests in person. I haven't been able to give Joe Lysett an overexcited hug or been able to surgically remove Alan de Botton's brain and put it in my own skull. Nor, I tell Stacey, have I been able to do a nervous fangirl stroke of her arm with a trembly finger. Sigh. I'm so delighted to, to have a chat with you. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, well, of all the people I've ever interviewed, it's the most excited I've ever seen my mum. Your mum! Oh, love her art. Let's dive into your work because, boy, there's a lot of it. You are a self-confessed workaholic and you've made more than 80 documentaries, am I right? Yeah, no, we've made a few. So I started, what am I now? I'm 33 now. So I started when I was 19, 20. So, yeah, it's been over sort of an extended period of time. But about that, I would say perhaps a bit more. I need to sit down really and go through them. There's been um, so much Stacey Dooley content during lockdown. It's truly impressive. We've had Lockdown Heroes, which is a gorgeous show where you hunt for everyday heroes during the pandemic. Become obsessed with the squirrels. (laughs) That was (laughs) highlight of my career, certainly. Uh, Glow up, yeah, glow up. Competition for makeup stars. Spy cam sex criminals in South Korea who hide DIY cameras called Molka. Yeah, that was quite sinister. It was interesting though, right? I I knew so little about that before we started researching for that. When you're standing on the bed and you're saying to the the spy cam hunter, what's he called again? Oh, isn't he lovely? Yeah, you know, he's sort of quite famous in Korea. So I think there's like a television series about him and his gang, his crew, and they go around and yeah, 
that they can always it's sort of rare that they don't find every camera that's that's been placed in the room and literally the places where they were finding them it was in like the spokes of a hairbrush and where was the nuttiest place that he found one so there was one in the head of a shower so there was one in a shower head which just yeah that just feels so dark doesn't it and just so intrusive that's the thing I remember thinking you know of course people are entitled to film themselves if they're in a loving relationship and you know they've both given consent like if that's your thing like you know fill your boots but the idea that you're being filmed unknowingly in your most intimate moments I just found it really offensive and I found it really frustrating um but actually it's just yeah it's sort of reasonably common over there I I think that's fair to say well there would be something like 10 Molka, which are these just incredibly crude tiny cameras right Mm. that could be Mm. hidden in just one hotel room yeah oh yeah definitely and that's the thing like when you start thinking about it they they could hide them in a set of car keys they could hide them like in a hairbrush in a in a coat hanger um in a pen you know these are objects that you've always got around the room and it's it's kind of a fine line, isn't it? It's a difficult balance because you want to be mindful and you want to be aware and you don't want to get caught out, but you also don't want to become paranoid. So I can imagine it's really tricky sort of navigating your way through life if you think that's a possibility. Completely. And the day before we're recording this, uh, the first episode of EastEnders, Secrets of the Square, has come out hosted by you, to fill the completely unprecedented gap in EastEnders scheduling that's been been sending people a little bit mad, because this is like the first time in 40 years? Is it 40 so years? It's, it's been going 35 years, yeah, you're, you're not far off. It's 35 years, so it started in 1985. I'm now this hive of knowledge, Pandora, <laughs> But the uh, first episode was in 85, and yeah, it's never been off air. That would make sense that it's 85, actually, because my mum's been watching it for my whole life. Can we talk about Danny Dyer? That episode, it is the most feel-good thing I've ever seen, bar bar Gogglebox, which does have a very (laughs) special place in my heart. And there's this bit where you ask Danny how he feels to get the call-up from EastEnders. The wheel started to fall off, and I made some bad decisions. So I was a little bit of a lunatic back in the day. I'm not now, you know, I'm I'm well-rounded and you know, grounded. Zen. Um, so Very. I couldn't get any work. So I was earning my money from doing PAs in a nightclub and waving off a balcony and pretend I'm famous and stuff like that. And that was paying my mortgage. So when I got the call from EastEnders, I was sort of like, oh my God, I could actually save my career here. Like many people, I'd always assume that, well, I still think this actually, that it's a massive coup for EastEnders to have Danny Dyer. And, you know, he's like the most famous person they've probably had on the show. But he tells you completely honestly that it was a lifeline when they called because he was in a real mess at that point. I was just really taken aback by his honesty. And you inspire this incredible honesty in people. It's an extraordinary skill. That's what makes him so lovely. And that's why he's so likeable, because he's just very candid. He's very transparent. He's very forthcoming. And I love that about the series, actually, because often I think when you interview, you know, soap stars, whatever about, you know, their relationship with the show, etc., their career, they often focus on their character's storylines. But you come away and you don't really know much about them. So I was mindful of that. And I just I, I, I really am fond of Danny and Kelly. I think they're both really lovely, decent people. 
Um, and I really appreciated his honesty. But yeah, it's mad, isn't it? How it how it all works out. It's he was he was really struggling and in a very sort of chaotic place. Um, is my understanding. And yeah, and then he got this gig, and yeah, it's been a bit more smooth sailing. <laughs> what was really interesting about Danny talking to you so frankly is that even though you just deflected very expertly there, it does come, I think, down to you. Your, your style coming from this place of utter compassion and candour, which makes it all the more weird that your interview style is consistently flagged as being unconventional. Where do you think this idea comes from that documentarians should be implacable and remote? Because it does feel woefully out of date for the time we live in, which is a time when we do place the utmost emphasis now on compassion. Mm. Yeah, no, I echo all of that. I think you're totally right. I think... Typically, sort of traditionally, people that made documentaries, you know, were very sort of middle class, a lot of sort of middle-aged men, and it was about being completely objective and completely neutral and not offering opinion in any way, shape or form. You know, I sort of, I didn't go to university and I didn't study journalism, so my route was, was very unorthodox. I was a contributor, and then the guy who was in charge of the Beeb at the time sort of quite liked my approach and he sort of called me in and said you know I found you sort of just naturally very curious and you know there's compassion there and you sort of have emotional intelligence I was never you know a massive fan of of studying I was never a real intellect but I, I thoroughly enjoy sort of spending time with people and trying to understand their take on things um so I remember him saying to me you know don't feel the temptation to conform you will get a load of stick and you'll get loads of hassle and some people will really find you refreshing and they'll find you really approachable and really relatable and other people will think, who on earth is this moron, you know? And she's had the audacity to sort of come to sort of current affairs and, you know, sort of news space. Um, so you'll split the camp. And I, I, he was completely right. Um, and it's been like that for, for a long time. But I, I don't know, I think more recently emphasis is placed on making sure people feel comfortable and that's that's always been my job right so I I kind of approach these people and often they're in you know they're living in hostile environments or they've had just a really difficult time and you know some of their stories are so harrowing I'm to go there and I need to make them feel comfortable and I need to make them feel like they've got this platform that they wouldn't necessarily be given otherwise and then they can tell us what life is like because they've lived it, they've been through it. I think there's nothing worse than when you've got somebody stood from a distance, sort of pointing at the subjects, if you like, proving to the viewer how much information they have on the topic. I think, well, I'm sort of not really that interested in hearing from you. I want to hear from the lady in the background mm-hmm. that's actually been there you know what I mean despite it now being 15 years ago you have possibly one of the most famous origin stories it's a bit like the story of Kate Moss getting discovered in (laughs) JFK I like that comparison Pandora yeah you can take that you can take that (laughs) the first and last time I think I'll be compared to Kate Moss (laughs) everyone knows that your first job was on a perfume counter in Luton. And 
you're now 33 years old and the idea of you as this ingenue does sort of prevail and I am aware I'm now doing the same thing in mentioning it but I just wondered does it ever get boring? I feel like I have the authority to make these kinds of documentaries I've been I've been doing it for for such a long time and when people say oh you know you didn't take the traditional route or you're not a traditional journalist they're completely right and they're completely entitled to their opinion but I also think often I'm much more experienced than them in terms of the amount of time I've spent on the field or I've had so many cups of teas with so many contributors and I stay in touch with them. I speak to people that I filmed with sort of seven, eight years ago, you know, on Instagram and they're sending me photos of their grandkids and this idea that I'm sort of wide-eyed and bushy-tailed is is outdated now. Um, But also I sort of don't really take any of that too personally. I think as long as I'm delighted with the film and I feel like the contributor has been given the opportunity to tell us what they've been going through. You know, of course, we have a real duty of care and we have to make sure it gets through legal and there are so many people that have to sign these things off. I'm not too arsed now about people saying, oh, you know, are you taking somebody's space that, you know, went through Cambridge? And Because I think actually there's room for all of us and actually there's room for different tones and different types of journalism. You know, there isn't one type of music there isn't one type of film there isn't one type of editorial you know it's you can you can have men that are a bit more formal and are a bit more straightforward and, and less emotional and then you can have people like me who who are the complete opposite <laughs> and also if you want to bring it down to business which is often the argument your documentaries rate higher than any others on the BBC the only thing that beats you Ironically, is he Stenders? Is he Stenders? <laughs> and now you've conquered them. You had an That's agenda. <laughs> I've done it all. I've, I've done it. But I mean, yeah, no, you're you're completely right. I think so, some people, so people like um, Orla Gurn, who I absolutely adore, um, and David Dimbleby, and all these really established, really bright, brilliant individuals have have been so um, nurturing, actually. And they always say, you know, I love watching your stuff. And, you know, David, I remember, come, came up to me at the NTAs and was just so generous. I think he was given an award. It was sort of a Lifetime Achievement Award or something along those lines, right? And we all sort of sat down at, at the NTAs and da-da-da. And then he sort of, he didn't dedicate the speech to me, but he sort of gave me a, a bit of a mention when he was on the stage. He said, you know, there's a girl in here and... A lot of you know her because, you know, through dancing, but I know her because, you know, I believe she makes brilliant documentaries and I'm delighted to have met her tonight. He was so, he was such a gen and his wife I met afterwards and she went, oh, you know, he always makes us watch you when you're on. And so I think, you know, there are sort of these stuffy stereotypes, but there are also really beautiful people who also recognise that, you know, there's room for change and, the thing about me is I'm able to reach a demographic that some people aren't able to tap into. Um, and, and, and I really don't take that for granted. There's nothing lovelier, Pandora, than when, you know, a kid that's sort of walking home from school comes up to you and says, oh, you know, I watched your film on child soldiers in the DRC. God, I didn't know that was an issue X, Y, Z. You know, that's really cool. And instead, it's not like you're sitting there, you know, like lying on the sofa being like... So what's going on? Like, why are you so sad? You are going in and making a documentary. You just, you're just a young woman doing it who doesn't have, which is often picked up on, who doesn't have an accent of received pronunciation. Mm-hmm. The thing is as well, arguably, 
those who sort of um, slot into into that that camp, if you like, you know, the sort of privately educated, uh, very well spoken, you know, dress a certain way, hang about with a certain crowds. The documentaries sometimes that they make, they're making them for people who move in similar circles. So actually, you're almost, you know, preaching to the converted. If if we're able to make really important documentaries about really important topics and bring it to an audience that doesn't listen to Radio 4 religiously or doesn't watch Newsnight, surely that's real progression and that's a real, you know, it's a step in, in the right direction. How do you decide what to make? Is there anything that you would never touch with a barge pole? Um, so I'm, actually, I'm quite lucky because I've got a great working relationship with the Beeb. Um, so typically... I will kind of brainstorm or I will sort of, you know, go through articles and think, oh, God, I wonder if there's something in that or, God, I find that really fascinating. Or they will come to me and say, we've got access, you know, with a brilliant fixer in, I don't know, Nigeria. Is this something you're interested in? So it's much more of a collaboration now. I've only said no to two ideas. I turned one down that was based in Somalia. I just, I felt... I felt it would be really difficult to not get kidnapped, potentially. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's the most dangerous country in the world at the moment, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, different locations are, are dangerous for, for different reasons. Mm. But, I mean, Syria, because I never thought I'd go to Syria. Um, but actually, you, you can work in, in a way in Syria, which means um, it can be fairly low risk. So it's just about trusting people on the ground. Like the, the local fixers are just so crucial and just so brilliant. And, and I'm so delighted that I've got people on my phone that I can call and say, you know, what's the situation? How's it all unfolding? I mean, you've had to be quite cloak and dagger sometimes about yeah. places you've visited. You were in Nigeria in the birthplace of Boko yes. Haram and you yeah. told your mum you were in Lagos. That's right, yes, <laughs> I was in a place called Maiduguri, Maiduguri, um, the northeast of Nigeria, um, exactly right, Pandora, birthplace of, of Boko Haram. You're really nervous, you're really apprehensive because um, I think some of the attacks there are a bit more unpredictable th than other places. Um, there doesn't seem to be a real pattern. And so when you're going through risk assessments, etc., a bit of it, you sort of a bit of guesswork, you think, oh, God. you know, you need to take things into account like local elections or you know school holidays because often Boko Haram will target the schools there's that famous incident where they you yeah. know bring back our girls, the Chibot um, girls yeah. yeah but yeah there's there's always so much to do before even sort of stepping on the plane how <laughs> many months of prep work is there from you or your producer spying something in the paper that you think hmm, is there a nugget of an idea here to you getting on the plane to that country? Mm. It varies. Sometimes it can be uh, a fairly quick turnaround, so you can see something, prep for four or six weeks, um, typically be on the ground for sort of two weeks, and then come back and have a six-week edit, um, so a couple of months. Sometimes these things take years, or you pick something up and then it sort of doesn't really have legs, and then you'll park it and go back to it maybe a year later. Um, if it's a reactive piece... You know, you can see it's all kicking off. You can get on a plane, film what you can and then bring it back and see if there's anything um, in the rushes. It's, um, yeah, there's no hard set rule. I think it's, it's quite fluid in that way. Is there one that you still can't 
believe that you managed to make that seemed you know a pipe dream completely impossible to make work and that kind of stuns you that you managed to do it I mean there's probably more than one isn't there <laughs> there's been a couple of times where I've thought what if there's more than 80 of, if there's more than 80 of these I'm gonna think there's more than one that was seemed impossible I always sort of internally sort of have a go at myself you know when I'm getting I'm just sort of walking into, you know, a really mad situation and I say, well, you know, you sort of voluntarily got on the plane and you fought for this commission and now you're here. <laughs> just like, what am I doing here? And I'm, I'm very proud of, of the work we did surrounding the Yazidi community. So um, I've been to Iraq three times now and I really love it. You know, it's a really beautiful part of the world and I don't know how much you know, but in, in 2014, IS targeted a place called Sinjar and, you know, sort of real hatred on, on their part towards the, the Yazidi community. But, you know, I've always found them to be very progressive and very liberal and the Kurdish community really have a special place in my heart. Um, and that's the first time I, I went to Iraq and I just couldn't comprehend what I was hearing in terms of the stories, you know, IS kind of systematically raped the Yazidi women and, you know, massacred the men and they were all forced to flee up this mountain and some of them were sort of dying of thirst at the top of this mountain. It was just the most horrendous thing I've ever heard. But despite all of that, these women were so warm, bright and so so girly and, and so tactile and so endearing and just amazing. So even though I was sort of riddled with nerves and, you know, sleeping on a roof and driving through Mosul and there being sort of unexploded IEDs and, you know, sleeper cells underground, I think when it all comes together, you think, fuck, well, we did it, you know, you're, you're made up that they were able to, to tell us their story. And one of those documentaries was Face to Face with ISIS, yes, which yeah. you made in 2018. Yeah. And there was some controversy around uh, yep. the filming of Shireen, who's yep. a Yazidi woman who was held captive by ISIS in Mosul. How do you wrestle with what should or shouldn't be filmed? You mention in your um, book, which is absolutely brilliant for anyone who hasn't read it, <laughs> it's called On the Front Line with the Women Who Fight Back. And you mentioned in your book, there's another point where you debated whether or not to film young survivors of sexual abuse yes. during their anger therapy sessions mm -hmm. in the Philippines how do you come to those decisions do you ever have so for example in the case of Shireen do you have any regret or are you very do you make your peace with your decision at that time and then sort of park it yeah it's a good question um and 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 a really important question actually because I think sometimes there could be an assumption that we kind of turn up and you know, we grab the nearest sort of um, Yazidi survivor and, you know, we're really invested in her for sort of two or three weeks and then we sort of jump on a plane. It's like, see you later. Um, that so much goes into making sure that she feels comfortable and we have to assess, you know, is she of sound mind? Can she give genuine consent? You know, how old is she? What's her support bubble like? Where are her family? With Shireen, you're absolutely right. Some people thought we got it wrong. You know, some people thought we should never have brought her to a guy who was associated with IS and, you know, the two of them should never have been brought face to face. I obviously sort of fundamentally disagree. I think she is an adult woman. It was her that went through this complete turmoil. 
I think if anybody's perfectly placed to ask those questions, it's, it's her. And I think as long as she felt supported and she felt like she could say no at any time and she was in complete control, why not? Some people could liken it to restorative justice. It's like, you know, that splits people too. But I stay in touch with Shireen. I spoke to Shireen two days ago, you know, and we made sure that she was off at therapy and there was counselling available. And she had a friend who came around with us the entire time. So she always had somebody on the trip that felt like they weren't part of the filming gang. And does she still feel like she made the right decision? Completely. She feels really at peace and I think that she feels like she gained a lot from having that that chat. And I think, you know, I'm happy for people to ask these questions because, you know, they're valid concerns. You know, these are people's lives and you can't walk into their lives, film with them, turn it upside down and then go. In Stacey Dooley's Sleeps Over, which is a show where you spent a weekend with a bunch of British families with very different lifestyles, there was one episode where you went and stayed with a family that was entirely child-led. So the children would eat and go to bed, for example, whenever they want. You were completely understandably quite baffled and you said this bit to camera, and I think about this all the time. We aren't on the same page we aren't in the same book. We aren't even in the same library. We were, Pandora. It was, and again, you know, I, I think it's really important to have conversations and spend time with people that you don't necessarily go about with. I think we're so tribal and everything feels so divisive at the minute. We've almost lost the art of debate, you know? I... I, of course, I am friendly with people who vote Tory. Of course, I'm friendly with you know, people who voted for Brexit. Of course, you know, because even though it's not what I believe, they are entitled to their own views and their own thoughts. And I think when you only surround yourself with people that read the same newspapers as you, listen to the same podcasts as you, follow the same documentaries as you, I don't know how healthy that is, actually. So I really appreciated them sort of opening the doors and allowing me in. The, the thing that I really sort of couldn't get my head around was their, their lack of willingness to um, have their kids vaccinated. And just modern medicine sort of more generally, I just, I, I thought, God. And I think that's because I have spent so much time in places like Africa and you know, Southeast Asia and Latin America where I've seen children die because they haven't had basic vaccinations. And... I, it just feels like such a luxury to be able to protect your kids in, in this country. I just think you don't understand how dangerous it is to flirt with the idea. She was saying she'd love to go travelling with the kids, but, you know, they wouldn't be given malaria tablets. And I was just thinking, far, you know, I think you have this romantic idea of you and your family sort of discovering the world, but that's not reality. But again, they're not my kids, you know, they're not my children, they're her children. And she's doing what she thinks is best for her family. So I have to, I have to respect that. You touched on something there that really comes across in your work which is that you really hold back on moral judgment and you write in your book that this goes back to your childhood when your mum married your stepfather Norman and that that time taught you to not be judgmental. Growing up um, my birth father my sort of biological father's no longer alive he sort of you know had his own demons etc and that's all sort of quite complicated but my mum such a trooper right so she was um, a single mum sort of working in a pub cleaning her pals houses 
she was a receptionist for a bit, sort of juggling, you know, working and earning and then sort of bringing me up. And then she met Norm, <laughs> you know, he's my sister's father. Um, and I just always thought, God, really incredible, actually, of, of, of Norman to, you know, fail for me mum or whatever, but then sort of take me on. You sort of don't take that for granted and sort of hindsight's a great thing, isn't it? But the older you get, the more you understand, God, I... I, I would like to think that if I met a guy and, you know, I fell in love with him, that I, I would have enough about me to kind of embrace a child if, if, if there was a child on the scene. But um, I guess you never know, do you? So, yeah, he, he, he was great for that. And then, you know, it was just sort of very humble beginnings. <laughs> um, and I just, I spent so much time with with so many different people and I think Luton as well is 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 such a multicultural um all-inclusive kind of space it was what you know when I was tiny you you have so many relationships with, with so many different people and you learn actually you know that there are very few people that are bad you know often it's circumstantial or they've been through things or you know you have to you kind of have to allow that people have had a life before you meet them and that might have shaped where they are or their views etc and I think you just have to take people as you find them and try and find the the good and and the light in people god that sounds so sort of miss world but you know what I mean that reminds me of when you were talking <laughs> about the uh cameramen you've worked with who are quite earth wind and fire oh and my goodness there's a lot of that you know very spiritual I don't know do you know the frontline club it's this kind of uh, club in in no. West London where lots of sort of war journos reside and you sort of you walk in there and it's all very earnest and very serious <laughs> and I just oh god get me out of here the owners are lovely but yeah you've got to be in in the mood for it <laughs> This episode of Doing It Right is sponsored by Penguin Audio. If you like what you're listening to, you might enjoy my new book, an audiobook, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? In my book, I expand on the talking points explored in this podcast, as well as going deep into many more topics. From faster than fast fashion to millennial burnout, the explosion of wellness to the rise of cancel culture, I interrogate the stories we've been sold and the ones we tell ourselves. This book is my invitation to sit back and take a breath, to stop worrying about the answers and start delighting in the questions. How Do We Know We're Doing It Right is available at all good bookshops and online, and the audiobook is available to download now from Apple Books, Audible, and all audiobook retailers. Thank you very much to Penguin Audio. You put up a very emotional video on Instagram last week that you filmed on your way back from filming a new documentary with the NHS. I don't know, I was just like scrolling through. I had a couple of hours in the car coming back to London, sort of scrolling through Twitter. You can just feel so gutted, can't you? And so deflated and so heartbroken. You just think, how are we still here? Um, I don't know, I wanted to remind everyone that there were real... <laughs> Real goodies still floating about. The last few months have just been so surreal, haven't they? And there has been so much to to take on board and you're trying to learn and, and you're trying to process what's going on and 
you want to you want to make sure that you're supporting people that need to be supported and you know there are really important conversations unfolding that's really exciting but also it can feel so heavy can't it and you can feel god you know how how can we still be in a position where some people have an issue with black lives matter you know i think when i posted that video i was in the car coming back from bradford and i just had such a lovely week and you know bradford's is again you know there are so many BAME households and we'd spent time with like really amazing Asian Muslim women and I don't think we hear enough of their voices on television and you know they were pregnant and God, what's it like being pregnant sort of in the middle of Covid and then I got in the car and I sort of felt really I, f I felt full of kinds of joy I just had a really lovely week with really interesting compelling women I got in the car and then I was watching those videos of those like far-right skinheads like kicking off because there'd been a Black Lives Matter march and my heart just sank I just thought and I felt myself welling up in the back of this car and I just thought this is so depressing like this is so shit what like 2020 we're still here and then, you know, I got home and I thought, actually, do you know what? The midwives are incredible. The mothers-to-be were incredible. And we had really peaceful protests. And, you know, we'll get there. But it just, it's just been such a confusing time for everyone, isn't it? It's important to flip the narrative for ourselves as much as other people. But I think it's never felt so hard <laughs> to flip that narrative. Stacey, you're primarily known for extremely hard-hitting documentaries. Nigeria's yeah. female suicide bombers, the missing Indigenous women in Canada, the murder of women in Honduras. But you also present shows like Glow Up, a competition made up of makeup artists. And if you watch the show, it quickly becomes obvious that they're not just like doing a bit of eyeshadow or a dab of blusher. They, these are An like... bone, Yeah, a little a cat flick in the dark of the day. <laughs> they are bona fide artists, but nonetheless some people have questioned why you would want to do this when you're a real journalist and it really prevails this idea that makeup and fashion is fluffy and a diversion from the important stuff and it does take on I think a misogynistic bent when you consider that makeup and fashion are historically less so now but historically a gendered activity why do you think this idea that women have to choose and which I really admire you refusing to capitulate to like you're very open about the fact that you love fashion for example why do you think this idea prevails I know it's so it just feels so outdated doesn't it and this is it as well you know so I <laughs> I did the documentaries and I thought you know what Stace like really apply yourself to stories that that you really believe in so I sort of went off and sort of tried to carve myself out a little career in in that arena I said, what the fuck are you doing here? You know, oh, God, this is watered down journalism. We don't want this. Okay, so if I do things like Strictly or Glow Up, oh, why are you doing light entertainment? You know, this is trivial. I thought you wanted to make documentaries. It's like, you know, where am I allowed? You know, <laughs> so it's yeah. like, I've kind of come to the conclusion that I will just make what I want to make and I will work on what I want to work on. You know, I'm 33 I just I'm a grown woman so anything that I find interesting or you know excites me I, I say yes to and I think there is this assumption that kind of makeup artists um people are just so patronizing it's like oh you do makeup do you oh that's you know that's cool but it's like you know they're artists 
And art is subjective and there can be so much snobbery around makeup artists. It's like, but you don't apply that same snobbery when people are walking around galleries or museums. What's the issue here? You know, they do transform faces. It's a complete transformation. And I think these kids are entitled to be a part of, you know, a flagship BBC show. You know, they pay their licence the same as all of us. In an interview in 2017, you said, if you piss off both sides, you're somewhere in the middle, which is where I want to be. I was really struck by that as it's completely antithetical to the situation we find ourselves in now, which is, as you mentioned earlier, tribal. Even in conversations that really demand nuance, people are being demanded to pick a side. Do you remain really resistant to this? I think if if we're talking about human rights, then of course you need to stand up for what's right and, and, you know, you can't waver. You need to be very definite about that. But, you know, like I touched on earlier, if you're talking about people's uh, political preference or um, things like that, I think you you need to be willing to listen to the opposing side at least. And drugs, that's something that you you write at length about yeah, the sort I mean, of you know, the war, pros and cons, I'm not yeah, going to say that. I mean, but. The war on drugs, in, in my opinion, has failed spectacularly, you know? We've lost more people in the production line and the production side of things than we have through consumption. So I, I just think, you know, it, it's not working. We've been trying for decades and still we haven't got it right. So I don't know, I think my ideas might be... A, a bit more radical but and I actually don't take drugs you know I've never taken drugs and I don't take them recreationally and you know so it wouldn't it wouldn't sort of benefit me personally but I I just think we we need to start looking at things in a very different way if they want actual sort of significant change you have such conviction in the way that you present your documentaries and so many people really struggle not to care what other people think. And I think you sound like you've cracked it. How did you get to this point and how did you do it? I'm very lucky, actually, because I don't, I don't seem to really struggle with that in a way that a lot of my pals do. I guess it's because people have been writing things about me for, for such a long time and often they've been really negative and, you know, they haven't been particularly complimentary so you're taught very early, fuck, you know, you've got to grow thick skin, else you're never going to make it. I think as well, so much of it is ludicrous. So much of it is entirely untrue. It's factually inaccurate. You know, it's, it's nonsense. So once you've accepted that, you understand that even if people do have certain ideas about what you are or who you are, they formed those views off of things that aren't real. So there's nothing you can do about that. So my kind of approach, if you like, is I hope that when people meet me, they they feel comfortable and, you know, they feel like, you know, I, I put them at ease and, you know, they're entitled to an opinion once we've had a conversation or we've interacted sort of face to face. But other than that, you'd never go to sleep. You'd never leave the house. You'd be sliding down the walls if you panicked about what every single person thought of you. So I sort of park it there. I don't know how, though, because I know a lot of people sort of understand that in theory, but they find it hard to actually go with it. But I just, I can't. And I think, as I wonder as well, if my job gives me such perspective, you know, I think, fuck, of course people are chatting shit or people think these things and da-da-da-da-da. But I'm not fucking living in a, in a refugee camp panicking about how I'm going to feed my kids. You know what I mean? I'm so privileged and I'm fortunate and I've got such a, a lovely, comfortable life. 
um, I try and practice gratitude. Like I, I don't take that for granted. I understand that, you know, they are real, real problems. When you won Strictly Come Dancing in 2018, yeah. the scrutiny yeah. of your personal life shifted a hell of a gear like your relationship breakup made I think probably front page news do you ever regret putting yourself in that space or did you see it as an inevitable part of your career success because you are now a household name how does it feel going from someone that obviously was known but didn't have that that level of scrutiny you know people weren't interested in what you were wearing and who you were snogging like they are now once you sign up to something like strictly in essence the the tabloids believe that that's you giving them the green light um and i definitely underestimated just how obsessed they would become um and especially you know at the start the sort of bigger names than you there was a girl from the pussycat dolls and there was a girl from steps and there was a lad from blue you know so I sort of all the bands. That, yeah, well, that's it. <laughs> like a '90s dream. But I sort of, I, I, I wrongly assumed that you sort of, they wouldn't be too fussed about what I was doing off camera. But then you sort of gather momentum, and people saw oh, sort of she's doing well or whatever. And I think as well because I sort of had the audacity to sort of bite back at a couple of uh, the journalists. <laughs> Um, they, they couldn't believe it and they thought, right, we're going to go for it and, and go for it. They did. But uh, <laughs> when you're on the front page and they're talking about who you fancy or your personal relationship and it's difficult. But again, there are people. I try not to actually. The first couple of articles you read. But again, Pandora, it's like so often there's not an ounce of truth in these articles. And so... What, what can you do? You can go to Twitter and you can kick off and you can say, this isn't true, that isn't true. But if you're doing that all the while, you're dedicating so much time to that. You think, well, actually, I could use my time in far more productive ways. So I've learned that they're going to say what they're going to say and it's up to people to sort of come to their own conclusions. But it is, it's bizarre. It's bizarre when when you're on the front pages. And actually, that's... That's the thing that's so frustrating as well, because you think, God, you know, I've had all these amazing conversations with all these amazing people that warrant the front page. The Yazidi genocide, put that on the fucking front page. Women in the northeast of Nigeria being kidnapped from their schools, put that on the front page. You know what I mean? Like, well, anyway, what can you do? Yeah. <laughs> you were just 19 when Blood, Sweat and T-shirts was made, which means that you've done an extraordinary amount of growing up in the public eye. And I'm not going to lie, I'm not envious because I think I was a fool for a lot of my 20s I mean arguably still 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 no but I'm not yeah I know I'm still pretty pretty foolish (laughs) how do you navigate making mistakes in the public eye how for example did you deal with or did it change the way you work or share that work when uh I'm thinking of the comic relief controversy of last year where you shared a picture of on Instagram of you hugging a young Ugandan boy. Various people, including the MP David Lammy, accused you of being a white saviour. Did that confronting experience, particularly in light of the conversations we've been having the last few few months? You go through life and you're trying to work it all out, aren't you? You're, you're, trying, to, you're trying to do the right thing. Um, but I don't know one person who isn't flawed and who hasn't made, you know, tons of of mistakes um in in terms of that incident specifically um 
I went to Uganda and, you know, I dedicated that week to, to comic relief. And in my mind, I was thinking, fuck, right, we, we can raise as much money as possible and essentially save loads of people's lives. Like, to me, it, it was that straightforward. Perhaps it was too simplistic on, on my part. I posted the photo and I think people don't believe that we had verbal consent, we had written consent. The grandfather had a working relationship with Comic Relief, you know, that's why he spent time in that particular part of the village. Um, you know, there's so much due diligence, so much goes on behind the scenes. Um, but also, you know, I can't tell people that they're wrong and I'm right. You know, I, I obviously, you know, I missed I missed the mark in, in terms of tone and perhaps you know I shouldn't have posted the photo um, even though we had consent and you know I need to listen to people when they're saying you, you know you fucking you didn't get that right um, but I'm always open to those kinds of conversations because I want to learn and you know I want to do the right thing and um, I, I wanted to help um, but if people are saying fuck you know that that's not the way to go then that's not the way to go and you know people sometimes say you know why didn't you take the photo down and I think because I have to take ownership of my behaviour and, you know, I don't want to pretend that that didn't happen because there's nothing worse than when somebody makes a mistake and then goes around deleting all the, the reports or deleting all of the articles. You know, you, you have to take responsibility. Did it change the way that you use social media? Are you more cautious now when you post? Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to upset people and I, I don't want to cause problems I, I want to be an ally I, I want to help and I think this is where somebody posted the other day and it was completely right it was like just because uh, we didn't post it doesn't mean that we're not doing the work because of course I'm trying to read as much as possible and I'm listening to all of these conversations and I have to hold myself to account and I have to make sure that you know I just have to like consume as much information as I possibly can and just because I'm not posting that online doesn't mean I'm not doing it and then I think if I were to post it, I don't want it to be like, oh, look what I'm doing, because I know it's not yeah. about me. And yeah. I think you're right not to delete that picture, even mm. if it, you know, is uncomfortable because it means it sort of lives on because the internet doesn't forget. I'm aware this could be an impossible question. Is there a documentary or a couple of documentaries that not just changed you, because I'm sure that every documentary you make changes you, but change the way you live your life day to day when you're at home in the UK? This is going to be a really cheesy answer, Pandora, so apologies in advance. I so it's going to be quite earth, wind and fire. It's going to be very hemp, very kind of, <laughs> yes, that kind of, that sphere. I, th I think what my career has taught me overall, sort of more broadly, is to be less judgmental. I wonder if I hadn't have travelled as extensively as I have, if I would be a, a bit more judgy. Um, it, it's taught me that really it's luck of the draw, isn't it, in terms of where you're born. And actually, you have to be willing to imagine what life is like for, for so many other people a, a, around the world. Um, it's taught me patience, I think. Persistence. I think I've had to really sort of dig my heels in it at certain times. Um, but undeniably, it's totally totally shaped the person that I am today and I think I would be very different if I hadn't have worked in telly and I hadn't have sort of travelled the world making docks and I'd have stayed in Luton. Are you as calm as you come across? 
Do I? I love that you think I am calm. Oh, I think you're. I'm, I think you're really calm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Know. I don't get too flustered. Actually, I don't. I don't really sweat the small stuff because there have been moments where I've thought, "Fuck!" You know, there have been a couple of times where I thought, "Fuck, this could be it." Um, so whenever I'm not in that situation, everything feels like a treat. <laughs> I remember when we were we were in Syria and I think we were heading towards Kamishli or something and. We could hear gunshots and I just, I remember thinking, fuck, like, ah, God, what are we going into? Or, you know, so, yeah, maybe I am quite calm when I'm at home. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're in situations that are unimaginable to all of us watching. It's mad, isn't it? I know, I'm very lucky. I'm going to ask you something that I was asked recently because I loved the way it was phrased. What does success feel like to you? Not look like, feel like. I, I feel... I feel lucky and I, and, and, and I feel fortunate. I feel like I'm able to live a comfortable life. I don't have to worry about basic necessities and I don't take that for granted because I think it could have very easily gone the other way. <laughs> Success in my professional life feels like that. Success in my personal life, I think it's feeling content and feeling secure and feeling settled. And like you've got your own little gang, your own little unit and you've got a team, right? That I wonder if we feel a bit more reflective because of lockdown as well. It's forced us to pause, Absolutely. hasn't it, and take a minute and not work isn't at the centre of our universe because... It's not feasible. We can't physically go there. We can't physically be there. So, yeah, it's probably a mixture of the two, maybe. I think it's the combination of both, the pandemic yeah. and being 33 years old, Stacey. Oh, girl, you know, we're, we're getting on. <laughs> Stacey Dooley, thank you so much for being my guest for the season finale of Doing It Right. I cannot think of a more impressive woman to end on. Thank you. Thank you.